Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We're presented by The Athletic. Today, we've got a great show scheduled. It is with good friend of the program, Danny LaRue. We're going to talk about the Nuggets Clippers series, which has quickly turned actually very interesting and competitive. Uh, We're going to talk about the Raptors Celtics series, which ended over the weekend. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the insights we've learned so far from the playoffs. And then finally, we closed on the Rockets and where they go from here, because that is a fascinating team building experiment that seems to have gone a bit wrong. So before we get there, though, I just want to let you know about The Athletic and a great deal we've got. Don't miss this exclusive in-depth coverage of an unprecedented sports season. Subscribe now and save. Sign up now to see for yourself the creativity, reporting, and storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. And if you go to theathletic.com slash game theory, you can receive an all-access subscription for just one dollar a month sports are back and that means you don't want to miss the breaking stories on your favorite teams go to theathletic.com slash game theory receive an all-access subscription for just one dollar a month we hope to see you there uh, i can't emphasize enough how great of a deal that is for you but let's get to danny larue and talk about some basketball that happened over the weekend Danny, what's going on, dude? Hey, good good to be on with you. It's very weird to have a day with no NBA basketball during this Orlando bubble insanity, and it's uh, nice, I guess. Uh, it does lead to some anticipation of what is to come, though. Yeah, for sure. I kind of needed it uh, just <laughs> to get like that little reset because I'm trying to write these team previews. I'm doing podcasts and got some other stuff going on. Like I needed this just one little off day. To kind of reset, get everything done that I need to get done, watch game seven tomorrow night of Clippers and uh, Nuggets, and then go from there. Yeah, absolutely. And this isn't the way that I expected the uh, this series to go. But at the same point, it, it has been interesting because it's kind of like, where has it deviated from expectations and where has it kind of aligned? Like, I, I, it, I Do you want to just get into it now? Yeah, let, let's talk about that series. So... I will just be totally fucking transparent with the audience, right? Like, and I've been saying this on the podcast too. Like, I didn't really pay a close amount of attention to this series. Like, I was watching the games and like paying attention, but I didn't do like a deep level analysis until like even this morning after the. Clippers lost game six. Like I just, part of the reason for that is like, I didn't think the Clippers were taking this seriously. Like I thought that they were at some point just going to be like, okay, fuck this. Like we're going to win. Right. And in the first half, that's kind of what happened yesterday. Like they really figured some things out and then they took the foot off the gas a little bit. And Patrick Beverly fouled out after seemingly 20 minutes or whatever. And it really exposed some deficiencies that, if things break wrong tomorrow, Denver can genuinely win this series and Denver can genuinely go to the Eastern Conference Finals against the Lakers. Yeah, I mean, part of, I think, what what led to people not taking Denver as seriously is that crazy stat that they've 
trailed by 16 or more points in four of the six games of this series, including a couple that they've won. And like, so yeah. there, there has been a lot of indication, you know, that they can be outplayed by the Clippers, including in games five and six, where they trailed by, you know, 15 plus, I believe, at halftime in each of those games. But that undersells, and yes, the Nuggets have fought hard to come back, and they deserve immense credit for that, not only from down 3-1 against the Jazz, but this isn't solely about effort and grit and no. actually caring. And I think there, so there are two big things that I think are really interesting about the series that that one deviates from my expectations and one doesn't. So the, I'll start with the one that 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 doesn't. And that is Denver's offense, you know, the Nikola Jokic centric stuff, but also some of what Jamal Murray does. That do, that I always thought that would create some problems for the Clippers. I mean, yep. Jokic is a challenging player and especially with Montrez Harrell being limited by by you know being time on the bubble, it seems like he's he's out of shape, and also Jokic would be brutal for him even if Harold was a hundred percent. Well, yeah, Harold is like six six. Yes, and he doesn't have the you know the right tools in the defensive toolbox for somebody like Jokic. Jokic is incredibly strong. He has great you know like footwork, which can be a challenge to react to when you also have a size disadvantage. Yep. And because Jokic is comfortable being out on the floor, so Harrell doesn't have the length to be in two places at once. So, like, you think at this series has made me appreciate Rudy Gobert a lot because Gobert, while he's not the fastest guy in the world, he has amazing instincts and was able to tether to Jokic while still affecting things other places in a way that even Zubats or Harrell cannot. And I'm not saying those guys are amazing defenders, but it's you know that's part of what makes Rudy Gobert special. So and Jamal Murray's had moments. He's been helped by, you know, Beverly being limited. There were times in the series where he was a complete non-entity, but Murray has largely gotten back into form, even if not peak Utah form, because most teams defend him better than the Jazz. So that's one. One is the the Den- Denver's offense in particular has been has has wielded the advantages that made sense for them to have. But why I, why I picked the Clippers in five and why I thought that this series wouldn't be super feisty is that even with the Nuggets' improved defensive effort on the second half of the Jazz series, and, and they were a lot better execution-wise, you know, Jokic, but a lot of other players as well, I thought that they just didn't have the personnel to stop the Clippers. And what has been so surprising for me is that, and a lot of this credit goes to Mike Malone, but also, of course, to the players for executing it, is that I was right on that. They don't have a player to defend Kawhi, but you, you, you were talking about Game 6. Look at who played in the fourth quarter of Game 6. That was Murray and Harris, Torrey Craig, Michael Porter Jr., and Nikola Jokic. And yet, they were able to largely stifle the Clippers' offense, and that group is wonderful offensively, so they were able to score. And if you think about it, you're like, well... Who the heck defends Kawhi in that group? And the answer was, well, if you can't defend him one with one person, you defend him largely with two, and they were able to make that work. I didn't think that the Nuggets would be able to do that. So let's talk about the latter there first and then move to the former because I actually agree with both of those sentiments, and I think that there are two very real things that are happening there. So first, the Clippers... I think are actually kind of a perfect team for Denver to get the most out of what Denver struggles with defensively, right? Like Denver tends to struggle, especially with Michael Porter Jr. in the lineup with teams that can kind of break them open with ball movement, 
right? And can create all of these very quick rotations in succession that Jamal Murray and that uh, Michael Porter have to make, right? And that Nikola Jokic has to make because he, even though he knows where to be, he just doesn't have the speed to necessarily get there all the time, right? So the fact that this is a largely stationary Clippers offense that relies upon guys spotting up and spreading the floor for a single primary pick and roll action, I think is kind of enormous for Denver's defense. It allows them to not get broken open in the way that Denver uh, tends to struggle with. Like that's what Utah kind of did to them. And that's where the struggles happened in that series for Denver's defense early on. Right. And generally throughout the bubble, right? Like I remember the Spurs game, against Denver where that game was seemingly like 130 to 130 and you know DeMar DeRozan at the four was unlocking all of this crazy ball movement for the Spurs and just kind of breaking open everything that Denver was doing and look like Denver didn't have uh, a full cast didn't have Gary Harris and didn't have um, you know some of their best players in that game but at the same time it was very impressive to me that Denver has locked in in the way that it has, but I think it's a good matchup for their defense in order to do so. Do yeah, I think, I think that, that, I guess, I think, I think that's a great point. And there are lots of different elements in an offense and defense that can either be it's, synergistic or can, you know, that could be conflicting. And I think that's yeah. a really interesting one. And the styles make fights. Kind yes. Of thing. The styles makes fights kind of thing. And also, you know, like the Clippers, this comes up uh, defensively as well. Like uh, something that I've that I've noticed in this series is that the Clippers have a lot of good one-on-one defenders. I mean, especially <laughs> this is where when, I was going to go next. Yeah, when Patrick Beverly when Patrick Beverly's healthy, um, but they don't really have a ton in the way of help defense or like alternate rim protection. So one of the other big elements that happened, particularly in the fourth quarter of, of Game Six, is that when Jokic is hitting shots, or even when he's occupying, because I mean you have to respect him out there. Then the Clippers, they, they concede a lot more around the basket because their other players just aren't thinking that way and aren't particularly good at it, even if they are. I mean, Kawhi, sure, if Kawhi wanted to, he could be a wonderful supplemental rim protector, but he often has other assignments. And also Kawhi, the more they've had to put him on the Nuggets' better offensive players, the less he can do those other things. That's a part of why, you know, there was this theory with the that Nate and I had with the Lakers-Rocket series of, like, you want Robert Covington in the primary action because if Covington's in the primary action, he can't do anything else. Right. No, and, you, you definitely wanted that, I think, to be honest. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that... Uh, like, I, I will tell you, like, I was talking to people, like, within Houston, like, throughout the playoffs, and that's what they were worried about. Exactly. And... So it's a really interesting dynamic in this series as well, that the Clippers have a bunch of a specific type of player, and they have really good iterations of those players. But they not everybody's good at everything. And this is you know, it's something that I really like to talk about. I think it's one way to really help the discourse, is the idea, this, the same is true of like coaching or anything else. It's like, you can be good at a bundle of things, but that doesn't mean you are good at all of those things. So like there are great defenders who are bad at getting through screens. Right. Giannis is a great example of that. Giannis was defensive player of the year, but part of how Miami got some got some things going was that like Dragic Butler pick and roll because right. he couldn't get through a Dragic screen. That's just not something that Giannis is good at. That doesn't make him 
anything other than the defensive player of the year in the regular season, but it's not a strength. And like coaches, like there are great coaches, Mike Budenholzer, I would say to some extent, Greg Popovich aren't necessarily the best at playoff adjustments. You know, like they're, they, they're, and there are coaches that are good at playoff adjustments that aren't as great at building a scheme and everything like that. And so I think that it is worth understanding and appreciating. I think that's part of what I love about basketball. And it's very true in this Clippers series. And you brought up ball movement is one of those, like they don't have a lot of really good ball movers and they don't have a ton of help defenders. And so those two things are, one of them is negating a weakness for the Nuggets. And then the other one is accentuating a strength. Yeah. And I want to talk particularly about the Clippers pick and roll defense and some of the lineups that they put out there. The Clippers are getting seemingly demolished. Like, I don't know what the numbers say, but the Clippers are getting demolished in pick and rolls. And it's because, A, Denver is involving Nikola Jokic in a lot of those pick and rolls. And almost regardless of which center is on the floor, Jokic is going to be at an advantage in those pick and roll settings. Absolutely. Because Zubats is just not fast enough for him. He's just not quick enough to deal with him. And Harrell isn't big enough to deal with him. The thing that... They flashed a couple of times in game six, but I would like to see them do it like the whole game in game seven, or at least like, you know, maybe play Zubats 15, 20 minutes and, you know, just have him fight against Jokic and maybe tire him out a little bit. I think they should put Kawhi on Jokic. Well, they, that, that is one idea, and I think that they should go to that. Denver did a very smart adjustment. After a few possessions of the, yeah, it was Paul George and Kawhi guarding the pick and roll because a big foundational part of NBA defenses right now is can you defend the pick and roll two on two? And with those two guys, you can get closer than with any other combination of Clippers. Right. So what Denver started doing, partially because the Clippers gave them an out, which that's another thing we should discuss, is they just started setting the screen with Lou Williams's man. And yes, you're, especially if it's like, you know, if it's one of their guards, then that will lead to a worse screen, but it leads to a panic situation for the Clippers because Lou Williams is going to be put into difficulties. There were times when they switched that and then Jamal Murray has a drive to the basket because Lou Williams is better. He's been better at defense generally in this series than usual, but he's still not good. Oh, no. Yeah. I I don't even think he was acceptable yesterday. He 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 wasn't as good in game six. He was better. And I think that was like four or five. He was, there was, there were a couple games there where he actually tried a little bit and also they weren't challenging him as much. And like defending Jamal Murray is something very different than like defending Gary Harris or Reggie Jackson or something. Oh, not Reggie. That's on the same team. But anyway, you get what I'm saying. But like, I get what you're saying, but I think that this is the thing about that though. So say that you're going to do that and say you're going to run like a one, three or a one, two pick and roll with, Jamal Murray and Gary Harris's guy or Torrey Craig's guy or, you know, even Jeremy Grant's guy, right? If you have Kawhi on Jokic and they're avoiding involving Jokic in the primary action, that's a win for you. Like that, that that's a win for you, unquestionably. Now, the yeah. problem is that they can't play Lou Williams and Montrezl Harrell at the same time. They, I know that they like to do it. I don't think they can play Montrezl Harrell, period. I think I agree with like, you at, at this stage. like So that's the other big threat I wanted to talk about. And I'll, I'll make this big picture before we get small picture. Is before the bubble and before the playoffs, the Clippers' depth was a, was a legitimate strength. I mean, especially yeah. once they added Marcus Morris, it's like, 
oh my god, look at all the capable players this this team has. They have two guys who are serious contenders for six men of the year. They have Landry Shamet, who I've consistently liked but can't hit a shot in this series. Oh, he's unplayable right now. And he's, he's so been they terrible. Had, they had all these all these potential players, but the combination of Harrell not being right and Williams not being a good fit for this series has really taken that away. And it has been a challenge for Doc Rivers, a challenge that I would say he is failing at for right now, to acknowledge largely that the guys who he trusted are not trustworthy right now. But it runs into a problem. Nate and I did a um, we did a Sunday recording for Dunked On that ended up being two hours, but we did a segment on, on this game. And one of the weirdest parts of it is it's like, well, yeah, but the other players they have, while I think of them as good, they've basically been on ice for most of the time in the bubble. Right. Like Rodney Magruder. I like Rodney Magruder. I think he would have been playing consistent minutes for me the whole time. I like Jermichael. Jermichael Green has been playing. Jermichael like, Green's been good in this series. He's been good. But like Rodney Magruder, maybe, maybe, maybe some Patrick Patterson, though he might be toast. And, you know, some of those other kind of support players, they, they haven't played at all. And so, yes, you could make an argument, especially against this specific opponent. Some of those guys would be better than Harrell and Lou, given their specific limitations. Well, and you but, haven't even mentioned the, big, mentioned the big one yet. And it's that Pat Beverly isn't totally right, right. from having missed time. And because Beverly isn't right, I think he's kind of just being super hyper aggressive Pat because that's who he is. But because he's just like, you know, 10% off of his axis right now he's getting into foul trouble regularly and like he could only play 18 minutes yesterday. And when Beverly can only play 18 minutes, that means you have to play Lou Williams 25 minutes. Whereas you might've been anticipating only having to play him 18 minutes. Right. So that that's the big one for me. Like if Pat Beverly is on the court, you don't have to play Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell at the same time. And frankly, you don't have to period. Like you could play lineups of Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, Marcus Morris, um, Jamichael Green and, you know, whoever you want to put on the court, right? You could say Lou Williams, you could say uh, Landry Shamit, you could say, you know, X, Y, and Z, right? But because Beverly is, you know, not has not been very good in this series because I think he's slightly, you know, off his axis right now for a multitude of reasons. Like he got hurt early in the bubble and uh, he had a friend pass away. So like, I don't even mean to like blame this on Pat necessarily, who seems to be going through a lot. It's more that because he isn't totally right, it throws off everything the Clippers want to put together on the line, uh, on the court defensively, just in terms of lineup structure. Yeah, that's a fair point, though worth noting that Beverly is a high foul player all the time. I mean, he's basically been around four fouls or more per 36 minutes his entire career. And that is extremely high for a guard, right? Like but like, compare. but it's but it's ramped up because he's trying right. to make up for physical capability with intensity. And when you're already a high foul player, that will lead to even more fouls. And I 100%. think that's that's a great point. And yeah, so that and that's another way you can talk about depth. And I, I mean, Marcus Morris has been better in some games in the series, but he was a total non-factor in Game Six, and yep. that was that's that's a challenge as well. You know, like you have this idea of okay, what guys can we trust? What guys other? And I thought that Kawhi and Paul George. Overall, not unilaterally, but I think overall they had pretty good game sixes. Um, George had, had some got to the foul line a bunch of times. Kawhi had this really strong stretch in the first half where he's impactful in offense and defense and grabs some big rebounds. But you're going to need other guys to contribute. And the Nuggets, one of the strengths of their team 
is is that they do like because of the strength of especially Jokic as a passer, they often put those those players in position to succeed, yep. and they also have guys with pretty good skill sets. I mean, Millsap had that crazy fourteen point quarter in Game Five, and then you have um, you know Grant hasn't had as many moments in this series, but he could theoretically. Gary Harris has hit some shots, he's, and he's been wonderful defensively. Yeah. Porter's and, and had some big moments, especially Porter's had some six. big moments too, and so and and so also like the Nuggets have. They've also had this interesting thing where they haven't had to rely. They've been able to turn away from players if they aren't a specific fit in that moment or in that game. So, like, Mason Plumlee played eight minutes in game six because they had Jokic play 40. And it's not like they were going small and doing something revolutionary. No, they just had had, their players can play a little bit more. And Jokic, his ability, his talent didn't reduce as much you know by by extending him and certainly he's extended it's not like oh my god he could play 48 minutes a night or something crazy like that but you know that that meant that there were more Jokic Harrell minutes because Doc wasn't comfortable playing Zubats more than about 30 and he wasn't comfortable playing without without one of those two guys on the floor really well so can, can I just be honest too like I think Zubats has not been very good either. I think he's been inconsistent like, so like it's it's hard to deal with Nikola Jokic I totally get that. Like, Nikola Jokic is going to make a lot of people look bad because he's just, like, a special dude. But every time he's involved in a perimeter pick and roll, it's just going to lead to an open shot for the Nuggets every time. Yeah, It, it is and it isn't. I mean, I, I so I, th- I see where you're coming from, and I think that there's something there. But, but Zubats, he provides, he provides help around the rim in those circumstances. So you are conceding something. But I think that the challenge for the Clippers is when you go small, you have to actually have the wings to pull it off. And they do in a kind of theoretical full-strength sprint. Right. You know, they, they absolutely have the guys t- to make that happen. But if we're talking about 30 minutes of a 48-minute game, I don't think they have the horses right now. And so that makes that means Zubats is not perfect, but he's the best they can do. Right. And I when I say that Zubats hasn't been very good, I still think Zubats should be playing like 18 to 22 minutes a night. Because you just need that many minutes to guard Nikola Jokic and keep everyone fresh and deal with things. But overextending him at 30 minutes is not a good decision, in my opinion. Uh, Again, like, I think they should be using Kawhi on him. Because at the end of the day, A, you're either going to involve Kawhi in, like, pick and rolls, which is great. And part of this is based on Pat Beverly staying on the court again, too. Because I think that really what they should do is they should... Basically, whenever this game gets tight, be it in the second quarter, if they feel like things are, you know, getting away from them a little bit defensively, or be it in the fourth quarter when you're closing the game, right? I would go with Kawhi Leonard on Nikola Jokic, and I would have one of Paul George or Jamal Mur- or uh, Patrick Beverly on Jamal Murray. That's how I'd close the game. And they did do that with Paul George on Jamal Murray in game six. And they did. like that, I think was really smart, but... Because they had to play Lou Williams and Montrose Harrell and some of these other guys that didn't really have it defensively in that game, uh, Landry Shamit being one of them as well, there were too many other holes for Denver to exploit. If you can find a way to play small, play with only one bad defender on the court, I think that that causes Denver enough problems. And there are ways to do it as long as Pat Beverly stays relatively out of foul trouble. Like, you can play Paul George, Pat Beverly, Kawhi Leonard, Marcus Morris, Jermichael Green. That's a totally competent lineup that has five good defenders and I think would probably cause Denver some issues. 
It's a totally reasonable idea. I wish that that the Clippers had tried it earlier. Yeah, so do and I. One of the one of the, and just like I think Roddy Magruder and some of the other stuff. But yep. one of the other kind of hard things to reconcile about the nature of the game five and six comebacks is that a portion of them, not the entire thing, has come starters versus starters when starters versus starters was such a demolition in the first half. Yep. So you kind of you kind of run into these situations like, well, these guys were good enough before. What's going on now? And some of it is the Clippers in both of these games have been hot on threes in the first half and then cooled off in the second, just like you would never expect the team to be like 9 of 16 on threes for both halves. Like that would be too much to ask. Well, that, that's the funny thing about the Clippers. And I mentioned this on a previous podcast, but like to me, the Clippers are the most like people talk about the three point line and like teams that are jump shooting dependent. Right. And how that is you know, still a less, uh, uh, less tenable option, uh, at least like the older, you know, basketball players that you'll see like on TNT, for instance, like Charles Barkley and Shaq will still talk about like, oh, um, you need to find a way to get easier baskets that aren't jump shots because jump shots can have, they don't say variance, but like, that's what they're getting at is the idea of uh, variance and inconsistency. The Clippers are the most jump shot dependent team, I think, left because they don't have a ton of guys that get to the basket all the time. Like Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, those guys are based on jump shooting. Sometimes it's mid-range jumpers. Sometimes it's threes, especially in Paul George's case. Um, Patrick Beverly is like a three-point shooter. Michael Green is a uh, three-point shooter and cutter that you try and find at the basket, but they don't have a ton of great passers to open up defenders. Lou Williams is basically their only guy that generates shots at the rim consistently uh, other than Montrez Harrell and Montrez Harrell as we've kind of talked about isn't totally in shape and playable. So this is a very jump shooting dependent team that you kind of just have to expect these swings. I think at the end of the day and then trust that Kawhi Leonard is going to be able to close things. I agree, and I think so. One of the, here's an interesting thing that kind of aligns with with what you're saying, and I'm going to add a wrinkle to this that I think is is important to not to acknowledge with the jump shooting. There are two teams right now, so the two teams with the lowest rim attempt frequency remaining in the playoffs. So the two teams in the East, and then the three teams in the West. The lowest is Miami, and the second lowest rim frequency is the Clippers, and. The notable thing about those two teams, when we're looking at regular season stats, they are number one and two in free throw attempt rate. And that's the other way that the Clippers can get stuff around the basket is by getting fouled. Also, they can get fouled anywhere. And then if they're in the bonus, which this team can do at times, then they can do it. But remember, free throw attempt rate can be a challenge in the playoffs because things are called differently. More is not. And we saw at moments, there was that thing about like Doc basically being like, they're not going to bail you out. That was a line that they had in like one of the wired up segments or whatever. And it's true. Like those calls are going to be different. And one of the elements that makes the, to me, the Clippers and the Nuggets different in that respect is that the Clippers, you know, a lot of times it's smaller guys going into contact, and those things can be called differently in the playoffs. It's not, you know, like a big man in the post getting hacked every time or some something more in that vein. And so if the Clippers, you know, there are times that their free throws can can be saving them too, that they can, that it's jump shots and free throws. Like if one of the two is clicking in this series, it's probably enough. But when both are off, they're just dead in the water. Yeah, no, that's totally right. I guess that I would ask you for something of a prediction. I mean, I think the Clippers are going to win game seven because I've felt the whole way that the Clippers are 
going to win this series. Um, you know, maybe that's too disrespectful to Denver, though. Like, I think that we've kind of talked throughout this conversation on the Clippers and haven't necessarily given as much attention to Denver. Uh, part of the reason for that is that the Clippers are a more talented team. But I think that it's worth acknowledging that a Nikola Jokic has taken full advantage of what's been available to him. I mean, he dropped fucking 34, 14 and seven yesterday and was just totally unbelievable. Second, Jamal Murray has started to figure things out uh, after an inauspicious start following his, you know, scintillating fiery first series. Right. Uh, Third, Michael Porter Jr., it's been easier for him because like I said earlier, the Clippers don't run a ton of like crazy intricate offensive action, but he's been better defensively in rotation and has played his role offensively uh, and not really like tried to, uh, you know, take over offensive possessions at inopportune times. And I think he's been mostly pretty good about that this year. Uh, so I'm, I'm intrigued by that. And I think they've just gotten great, contributions from guys like Paul Millsap and Gary Harris defensively and uh, Jeremy Grant has given them athletic minutes certainly so I think it's worth acknowledging how good Denver is I also just want to say a thing that we've been talking about and kind of around throughout this conversation I think Mike Malone is coaching circles around Doc Rivers absolutely Mike Malone is fucking kicking his ass well and a part of that is also his guys are more in line physically. Like one of the hardest things for a coach to deal with is players who are available, but not right. And your, your brain goes, I've had, I've coached Montrezl Hill for years. He's a really good player. I know what he can do. He's just was crowned sixth man of the year. And that was, I didn't pick him, but it was within the range of the guys that I was comfortable with winning the award. And he's not that guy right now. And so one of the most important elements for a coach is to be able to evaluate whether, that player or combination of players makes sense in this given circumstance. And I think that that is something that Malone has done much, much better than Doc Rivers in understanding, okay, at this moment we can make this work. And also realizing that if they're going to send extra bodies at Kawhi, and this is part of where I started this, if they're going to send extra bodies at Kawhi, you don't need to throw as many resources at them being really good defenders because that's what the numbers do. The number, the number of people makes it so that you can have weaker defenders out there, and that means you can get more offense on the floor. And the Nuggets had a 34-point fourth quarter, which is something they probably wouldn't have done if Millsap and Grant were on the floor. And so, yeah, I think that Malone has done a really good job pushing the right buttons. That was not something that I thought was a strength of his in the 2019 playoffs, but absolutely has been so far. Uh, Something that I want to mention that I think is going to be really interesting in Game 7 this is now, as has been brought up many times, this is now the fourth Game 7 that the Nuggets have played in the last in the last two, years, two seasons. All of them, the other previous three, have been ugly games. However, Nikola Jokic has played well in just about all of them. He was a little bit shaky at moments in both of the, both of the ones last year. But, I mean, he had... 21, he had he, I, he had some missed shots against the Spurs, for example. But he did well rebounding. He had a bunch of nice assists in that game. So, I mean, it's, also, most Game 7s are ugly. And so I'm interested in how that plays out. You know, like, I think the Clippers have a higher defensive ceiling. I think that they have, you know, they have guys who can get buckets. And I'm, I'm picking them in the game. Partially, I mean, they've had big leads in almost every game in this series. Like, usually teams with big leads don't lose them. 
usually teams that like, or at least don't lose them this regularly. But the Nuggets absolutely have a chance to win the series. They have absolutely um, made a very positive impression. And so I'm not foreclosing on it in the slightest. I I would have the Clippers as favorites, but not overwhelming favorites. But largely because, I mean, like, so you could think about the idea of, like, the 538's Raptor model has it as 58% favorites for the Clippers, and then the uh, ELO model has it at 61. I think both of those are probably overstating it a little bit, partially because some of those models, it's more about how that player is at full strength. And I think that it, as we've been talking about this entire segment so far, that's not where the series is. And the Nuggets have specific advantages and the Clippers have specific disadvantages structurally that are that make this series more disparate from player quality than I thought. Right. And like you brought up the idea of wings and like having the right amount of wing depth. The problem with the Clippers is, yeah, they have Kawhi and Paul George and like that should be their wing depth. But like the adjustments that like, for instance, I brought up earlier essentially revolve around Kawhi playing as a, like as a big defensively and Paul George playing as a guard defensively so you still need to find the wing depth somewhere right and so and, or you can kind of finagle it with with guys who are a little bit smaller and just you know duct tape it but the problem is Shamit hasn't been good enough Beverly hasn't been good enough and so you can't even MacGyver it too well you that would be theoretically Magruder and you need Marcus Morris to play better of course so yeah I, I think that the Clippers can out-talent the Nuggets in, in this, but the Nuggets absolutely can win, and uh, it would be it would be I mean it, it would be a, an amazing story for them to come back from three one twice in the same playoffs. But it is an accomplishment for them, and I'm not saying this is like the like oh pat pat them on the head for doing a good job. Like this has been genuinely influential for me how well they have played in this series, how well they have responded in this series. Like this is different than the Jazz, where it's like okay the series should have been more your way than it was originally. You know like they shouldn't have been down 3-1, you know, like that sort of thing. Whereas right. this one, like, you're playing a really good team. You were down 3-1. You were down in Game 5. You were down in Game 6. And used the advantage you had, made some important coaching adjustments, and now you're in it. Right. And you brought up Nikola Jokic's performance in Game 7s uh, over the last two years against San Antonio. He went 21-15-10. and 10. Uh, Like you said, missed some shots. But, you know, when you go 21-15-10, and 10, I think it's pretty tough to complain about going nine for 26 from the field uh against portland last year in game seven went 29 and 13 against utah this year obviously went 13 14 and four uh and then obviously in that sorry i wanted to make 30 14 30 14 and four i'm sorry um and then in the previous two elimination games against utah went 31 6 and 4 and 22 4 and 9 and then in the two elimination games in this series has been 22 14 and 5 and 34 14 and 7 uh, we don't talk about Nikola Jokic as one of the great clutch players in the NBA enough he is absolutely in the realm with all of these guys now every single time that the Nuggets have had a tough elimination style game that dude has stepped up in an unbelievable way And something that's interesting, um, the Nuggets finished the regular season. They were sixth in clutch net rating. They were 29 and 16 in games that were within five points in the final five minutes. And they were pretty good on offense and pretty good on defense in those minutes. When you think about their personnel, that's impressive. Yep, totally. Uh, All right. Just a quick little ad break to hear from some sponsors. And we'll be back here in a minute with Danny LaRue. (laughs) 
This first advertisement is for something that is near and dear to my heart. It sure was nice seeing the teams back out on the gridiron over the weekend. Lucky for us, that was just week one. There is no better place to get in on all of the actions than DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy sports. I've got to tell you guys, I think on Sunday I submitted something like 18 different lineups into their contests. Uh, I was all over it. I am an enormous fan of DraftKings, as you guys know, from having listened to the show over the years. Uh, DraftKings has millions of dollars in total prizes up for grabs. If you haven't tried it yet, head over to the App Store now because you don't want to miss it. You draft your lineup. You feel the sweat like never before. Every run, pass, catch, it means more with DraftKings. It's simple. You just pick your lineup. You stay under the salary cap. You see how your team stacks up against the competition. It's really fun. It's really just a great way to have something on the line while you're watching football on Sunday. Uh, they paid out billions of dollars to winners since 2012, so they know a thing or two about cold, hard cash. Download the DraftKings app now and use that code RUN. For a limited time, new users can get a free shot at millions of dollars in prizes. Don't miss out on the week two action. Enter code RUN to get a free shot at millions of dollars in prizes with your first deposit. That's code RUN only at DraftKings. Make it rain. There's a minimum $5 deposit required. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. All right, and we are back. We're going to do a quick little section here on Raptor Celtics, a quick section on where the nuggets or where the rockets go from here and then i'm just gonna ask danny about some of the team building insights that he's taking away from the playoffs so far so let's start with the raptor celtics i haven't podcasted since game seven happened on friday night and i guess that where i go for here go for this series was i think the right team won the series i think that boston just generally created much better offense every time that Toronto was down the floor. It was like pulling teeth offensively. Uh, They got some really good shot making at times from Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet uh, to kind of keep them around in this series. But at the end of the day, I do think the right team won. But I also weirdly feel like even though Boston was more talented, there were some like strangely missed opportunities from Toronto in this series that could have stolen it from Boston. Like it was, it was a bizarre series to me. Like where, where did you kind of fall on this? Well, I think that you talked about the missed opportunities for Toronto and there were absolutely some there, but I think there were a lot of missed opportunities from Boston as well. I mean, there were games where Boston was getting open threes and missing them by guys who were better shooters than some of the players who were missing him for Toronto. And I think back to the, kind of the general thing that held for the early games in the series, which was that if it was close, either team could win, but especially Toronto. And then Boston won most of their games as blowouts. And generally what that means is that team is superior. And that's part of why I picked Boston in game seven, thought it might be knockdown drag out. It of course was. And I, I think that one of the elements that is potentially relevant in a Miami series, if Miami's switching as much as I think they're going to, is that, so Toronto ran a bunch of different defenses in this. They ran they ran box and one basically for the first half of game six and the first half of game seven. They went into various zones, matchup zones, and sometimes it was a, it would revert into a man to man if it got late shot clock or various other things. And in some of the circumstances, I thought that Stevens did a good job, especially when they when Toronto went back to something after in a, in a subsequent game. I thought that 
Boston had better stuff to attack it. They're probably members of their coaching staff that were working on that of, oh, crap, what do we do to generate things against Box and One or whatever? But what Boston did not do, did an actively bad job of in Game 6 and nearly cost them Game 7 as well was when a team is switching a lot. And it's funny because they're on the opposite side of the bracket as the Houston Rockets, and the Rockets are the team that allowed me to understand this concept because they're so aggressive with their scheme that it like. And I, you know, was watching because they were so good for so they've been so good for so many years that you think about things in their terms a lot. And so with the Rockets, it's this idea of okay, if a team is going to switch everything, you use the you use the early portion of a shot clock to either generate mistakes and to get the matchup you want, so that if you have to isolate you isolate in your most advantageous spot. And so for Houston, that's, okay, let's use 8 eight to 15 seconds of the shot clock to get James Harden on the other team's worst defender. And if you're playing against Houston, you, there are a bunch of different guys you can target. depends on what you're looking for. For whatever reason, Brad Stevens and the Celtics, whether you want to say it's coaching and bad execution, whether you want whoever you want to play, and I think it's the answer is both. They kept on isolating against OG Ananobi and Pascal Siakam, who are the two best isolation defenders on the Raptors team and two of the best isolation defenders in the entire NBA. And you can't do that. Jason Tatum and Kemba Walker are wonderful players, but they are not good enough to create regularly in an isolation against those two guys. And the problem for Boston... Can I just note that uh, I think Tatum kind of demolished Siakam. A couple, I see, here's the thing. There were a couple possessions where he did, and when, especially when Siakam was really tired, but over the course of the series, like, especially in game six, he did. And there were moments in game seven where he absolutely did. But, like, possession by possession, I, I didn't, you know, and there were times that then they used that to find passes and stuff. But, like, when they, when anybody went against OG Ananobi, which nobody should do, I firmly believe that he's, so the way that Nate and I, like, how, we, we were, we, somebody asked us this discussion, I think it was for a mailbag at some point, about, like, who's the best isolation defender, and what we thought the fair rubric was, was a player in the NBA was picked at random, you didn't know who it was, and who would do the, who would you be most comfortable putting in that situation? We both picked OG Ananobi in that, because he can do well on small guys, big guys, everybody in between. And so, don't isolate against him. Like, do anything you can to isolate against somebody else. Yeah, and yeah, I agree on OG. I think he and was they a didn't total they stop. didn't do a good job. And Siakam also was carrying a big offensive workload. Yeah, he wasn't as good. I think that's a fair note to make. But still, like, you could go to Fred Van Fleet, or you could go to Norm Powell, who was in the game for all of these minutes. Like right. all of these all of these other elements. And it's not like Toronto was. They were doing some good pre switching and some other stuff to to try to avoid some of that. But they weren't doing it super zealously. They have confidence in their guys. And right. Miami, I think your overall point is right, by the way. Right. Like but, so, but so here's the interesting thing about Miami. Miami, first of all, I think that their top-end defenders in this specific term are generally a little bit worse, though Iguodala can be good in those spots. He's just not as good on fast guys. And um, Butler, again, not as good on fast guys. But what Miami has that is different is they have weaker defenders as well. So what that means is if Miami goes to a switch-heavy scheme, Boston needs to spend some of their resources, and the resource in this case is primarily time, to get Duncan Robinson involved in primary actions, to get Goran Dragic, to get Tyler Hero. And yeah. those guys are going to fight, but they just, like, if, if I feel a lot better about Jason Tatum and Kemba Walker in an ISO against Duncan Robinson than I do against Jay Crowder or Bam. And if they're going to switch everything, then just... Do it. That you can, there is an advantage 
to be to be had there. And I think that's really interesting. But let's so let's let's pivot it back to Toronto. The problem for Toronto for, is the, kind of if you want to go along the same idea is that they didn't have a reliable way to generate half court offense really throughout the series. Yeah. I, incidentally, the best thing they had in my opinion was using screening actions, which they didn't do enough. And so they're, they're getting two different things. So if you ran Marcus Soul screens, which they did, I want to say that was the end of game three to help get some advantages. The benefit there is Marcus Soul sets really good screens. Right. And, and so you can a get ball mover and short yeah. rolls. Like so you, you can do so a lot can of get that. stuff. And then the other thing, the way over the course of the series that they actually got the most reliable half court offense was Serge Ibaka pick and pops. And yep. Ibaka, you know, he's not going to hit as many jump shots as he did in elements of the series. Like there was that time where he hit like four, he had four in pretty quick succession. I think that was in like game five. Um, might have been, no, it was game four because game five, I think, was the one where they got trucked. Um, and then, but, but so they, by going to Powell and some of the other stuff, like Powell, there was that weird moment where he had the, in game six, where he had the end, end of, end of regulation ISO because he might be their best isolation player. But, it was it was interesting to me that like that they didn't get into some of that kind of stuff, but Toronto just they don't have great personnel for that, and that's well. Here's, not, here's the problem though. Like, I know what the numbers said in terms of the on-off numbers with like Mark Gasol in that series. I kind of think Toronto wins that series if they go small earlier. Like Mark, I, Mark, I think Mark was a disaster defensively in that series. I thought. It, he was, yeah. I would, I would say that he was. There were ways to attack him overall. I think Ibaka was actually the way to go um, for 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 more of the series, just because that creates problems for a couple of different elements of Boston's offensive defense. But yeah, you're right that 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 could have worked better. Um, but here's the point: Boston's Boston's defense was stout enough, and Toronto's offensive personnel was limited enough that they weren't going to score in the half court anyway. Like right. that's they didn't have there there wasn't a, there wasn't a magic fix that was going to solve that. They just you know Pascal Siakam isn't that guy yet. Kyle Lowry that's not the strength of his game. He's he's a he can do a lot of things well, but he's not the guy who's going to create the seam that is going to open up somebody else. And Fred VanVleet isn't either. I mean we saw that after Lowry fouled out, and it was like okay Fred VanVleet you need to create a three. And they got nothing, partially because Boston snuffed out a hammer play. Right. But, but Jalen Brown was awesome despite being hurt. But, I mean, so Toronto, they're in this interesting place where they're an incredibly talented defensive team. They, are, they were fantastic in transition in the regular season. But they have, in this current iteration, they have a ceiling. And that's not Masai Ujiri being a bad decision maker or... Nick Nurse being a bad coach. I, in fact, would argue that both of them are the best at what they do in the entire NBA. But when you lose your best player, one of the best players on the planet, if not the best player on the planet, for nothing, and you lose another important starting player, not who was good at that, but who's good at other things, for nothing, it's hard. And so the Raptors will eventually, if their goal is to win a championship, they will have to... Go get a stop. They'll have to find that some other place. And they can and maybe they will, maybe they won't. We don't we don't know that for sure as of now. But I, I don't think that there's, you know, it, one of the interesting takeaways and of, of this round for me is this I so I was very I was very kind of definitive that I said that there were, in my opinion, three, you know, top tier title teams. And a part of it was 
like that there were a couple of teams that some people argued should be top tier that I said were not. And those most notably were in many cases the Rockets and the, the and the Raptors. And what I like my the reason I didn't have them in that was because the Raptors, I didn't trust their half court offense. That ended up working out. And then for the Rockets, it was that, you know, kind of the worth could against a good team, did they have enough on both ends to really like to make it work? Could they reliably stop a really good team and then could they reliably score? And, you know, they got they got drilled by the Lakers for a bunch of different reasons. And we'll talk about that presumably later. That doesn't mean everything else was right. I mean, one of those top tier team, one of the one of my top three teams is already out because they lost, but the Bucks lost to Miami, and the Clippers could be out on Tuesday if they lose to the Nuggets. Um, so it's not like I'm perfect or anything like that. It's just that oftentimes there are, there can be glaring flaws that keep a team out of the top tier, and it. A lot of times, it you, those don't matter in the regular season. And incidentally, the Bucks are a great example of this. I've done a lot of recording. I recorded with Matt Moore and Jared Dubin. We've kind of done pods talking about the Bucks foibles. If you want to listen to that on Real Jam Radio, but the, the it is interesting to kind of see these like imperfect teams kind of run up against brick walls, and that happens. Like that's what the playoffs right. are about. The playoffs are about throwing up walls for teams that cannot exist in the regular season. Well, the, the playoffs are about counters and being able to counter different things. And the best way to do that is to have multi-talented players, first and foremost, and have, well, I guess stars, first and foremost, multi-talented stars, like Jason Tatum becoming a ridiculous pull-up threat and simultaneously becoming an unbelievable uh, kick-out passer after creating those shots to his teammates, I think has dramatically changed what Boston ceiling is. And Mm -hmm. that is kind of the biggest thing that's happening with Boston right now. They now have that thing that everything, everyone is looking for a star. Wait, Uh, can I, can I throw a quick interjection? Yeah. 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 Okay. So I wrote a Giannis piece for the athletic uh, that came out late last week. And one of the things I posited in it was, I think of Boston as an under the radar potential trade target. They can't sign Giannis outright. They They have too much money on their books. And the idea behind that for me, I didn't go into this in the piece because I didn't have time. It was already like 2,800 words. Was And I know that's not huge for you, but anyway. <laughs> um, but, but basically the part that was subtext there was Jason Tatum's development makes a Tatum-Giannis pairing super fascinating to me because Giannis's biggest limitation is creating good shots for himself and teammates in the half court, something that is now becoming a strength for Jason Tatum. And so it's this idea that whether they're playing the three and the four, the four and the five, and I think in an ideal system for Boston, they would each do each. That you could basically that you could cover Giannis's biggest weakness with another forward-sized guy, and theoretically they would probably do that while retaining Kemba Walker. Right. Like, granted, they would probably have to get some sort of inkling from Giannis that he would resign. But holy crap, could that be a team? Right. And they could realistically probably do it with uh, keeping Gordon Hayward as well. Yeah. I mean, one of the ways that they might sweeten that deal for the Bucks would be including, so, and would actually, you could argue, sweeten it for the Celtics in the long term, is use Gordon Hayward's then expiring contract as a way to take on long term money from the Bucks. So basically, if there were Bucks players, not Chris Middleton, obviously, but if there were Bucks players that just don't make sense if they're going to really retool because they have all these older guys that make sense with Gian- that that make the team as good as they are right now that would then become a lot less relevant the second you trade Giannis. So maybe you use it as a facilitator there. 
um, you know, to, to add extra value for the Bucks because Jalen Brown is a wonderful principal, but he's now close to properly paid. So that's not as much surplus value as the best regular season player on the planet. Right. So, but there, the problem with the Giannis trade and all of this is, and I almost don't really want to talk about this because I don't think they're going to trade Giannis this summer. I agree. Um, they basically have to get the single, the single asset that they get at the top of that deal matters more than anything else in that deal. And I can't imagine them doing better than Jalen Brown in a deal like that. Yeah, I mean, especially if you're focusing more on player quality than player value, which I think is right. I think that you want to get you want to get the best talent. And that's also what Toronto got so horrendously wrong in the Kawhi Leonard trade. Right. Was, you know, getting back basically they did that trade and didn't get back any of the players who could potentially be like the best guy on their team moving forward. They didn't get Pascal Siakam. They didn't get the OG. Spurs, you mean, by the way. Yeah, the Spurs. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They didn't get any of those guys um, from the Raptors. And so, like, yeah, that was a big thing they got wrong. And yeah, you're right. Jalen Brown, wonderful player. And, you know, like, I don't think Jason Tatum would be available in that trade. So, yeah, you could make an argument that Jalen. I also floated Jamal Murray as a possibility because basically, basically it was for me, it was like the teams that have players that make sense with Giannis, but also have other good players that could be centerpieces. Right. And so it was like, yeah, it's, it's really interesting to run through that, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But it was the idea yeah. that basically Jason Tatum, his development has opened up avenues for Danny Ainge should he want to pursue them. Now, well, if they want to keep this together, they're going to be damn good. They don't have to do anything. Well, I think that what they're going to do is they're going to keep it together until a star wants to leave, and then they're going to get in the mix. And if they have the best deal on the table, like, for instance, like, I don't think I would trade Jalen Brown for Bradley Beal right now. And, like, that that's where it's going to get hard. Like, it has to be, like, a genuine top-flight superstar for this to work. Yeah, and those players don't hit the market very often. And the right. other big problem for Boston is that, and this is why the, the Harden deal, I'm sure, haunts them, is that almost every time in the modern era that player comes on, they don't have much team control. So like right. Anthony Davis, sure, they could have made they could have made a really good offer for Anthony Davis at the 2019 trade deadline. And then they would have had Davis for, at the bare minimum, the rest of last year and then this entire season. But if he was going to leave after that, like do you want to give up Jalen Brown for a year and a half of Anthony Davis? Probably not. Yeah, you probably so, want to keep five years of Jalen Brown. For exactly, one and a half and and and, and the possibility that he resigns after that, you know, like it's it's right, and so, but that's why the Harden deal was so special was because he hadn't reached that level yet, but he ended up reaching it pretty quickly, and then signed that you know had that extension on top of it. Five years, eighty-two million dollars was that right. extension, and so like that. That's the dream. Like, that is the, you know, like, as much as, you know, you could argue that what, what Masai Ujiri did for Kawhi is the dream because that got them a championship. That was a one-year thing. The Harden trade set up the Rockets for a half-decade plus. Yep. And that, but that almost never happens. Like, that's, that's a true anomaly in the modern NBA. Yeah, totally agree. I think that I want to go back to the idea of just multi-talented stars. And the idea of having more multi-talented players than other teams being the big takeaway for me in the playoffs. And I think that what you're seeing here is that the biggest thing you have to be able to do is counter what the opposition is going to provide to you. It's You can't be just a battering ram like Giannis, right? Because teams can find a way to stop that. Teams can find a way to take away one thing. On the other hand... James Harden has 
counters offensively for days, right? But at the end of the day, his thing is just isolation, period. Like, he's a good pick-and-roll creator, but a lot of the time he's stringing out those pick-and-rolls to be able to get a guy in isolation and then pass off that isolation or uh, try and draw a foul or try and step back for a three-pointer. So he actually does multiple things out of that, but if you can take that away by doubling him and what the Lakers did was they essentially delay doubled him uh, and whenever it got late in that shot clock down to 10 seconds, 12 seconds, they forced the ball out of Harden's hands because like you said, you want to, the way Houston does things is they want to spend eight seconds, 10 seconds, 12 seconds to be able to get that mismatch. Well, if you delay double the mismatch, it becomes very, very difficult for them to get efficient offense because then James Harden is in a circumstance where he's going up against a double team and has to make like an immediate right read. And then once he makes that right read, there's four seconds left on the shot clock. And that's where things get really tricky for Houston. You have to be able to beat teams in more ways than that. Yeah, I think that's really true. And Houston, though, ran into some real problems because when like if you get to the point as a player where you can get out of a double and make a good pass out of it okay like i mean that is a level of success offensively and the problem for the rockets was they couldn't two things they couldn't necessarily convert that into a good shot or or even a good shot that went in like those are kind of two different questions and like russell westbrook's limitations were a big part of that story and also just having guys that are, you know, maybe they're capable three-point shooters, but they're not rock-solid, reliable three-point yep. shooters. And so the Lakers run in, ignoring their other players was a huge part. Was a huge was a huge factor. And so you you can you can kind of succeed and fail in in different ways in that respect. And the other way that the Rockets failed was that their defense just wasn't good enough. And I think that there are a bunch of a bunch of reasons why that was the case. I mean, the failure in game four is its own thing. I mean, that to me was more of a failing of effort rather than personnel or execution. Well, that but, and like, look, the Lakers going small, they have the best small ball front court in the NBA. Absolutely. Like, we can talk about their backcourt being questionable, but like they get enough from Alex Caruso and Contavious Caldwell Pope to where they can be fine or whenever they play Danny Green at the two and play a three small. Like, when you can put Anthony Davis at the five and LeBron James at the four, it's just going to unlock everything for you offensively. Right, and the Rockets are the single best team in the league, in my opinion, at exploiting hiding spaces. And that could be a, a, a perimeter player that doesn't shoot. Or it could be a big man that doesn't do a whole heck of a lot. What really, whatever it is, like the Rockets, I use the term generally threat assessment. Like the Rockets yep. might be the best threat assessors in the entire league. Yep. That was especially true when they had Bizdelic, but it was also true overall this year. And what happened was when the Lakers went small and Rondo started playing a lot better, including on the defensive end, which was stunning to me because he's been bad on defense for most of the last three years, was... There just were too many threats. And so it doesn't matter if you can assess them well because you're, they're going to get something good and Davis had a bunch of offensive rebounds and, he, and, uh, and then there were a bunch of uh, other things that came into play. And so I think, yeah, that's an interesting, like kind of an interesting part. Like another counter is just talent. <laughs> you know, like that's right. going back to like how the Warriors won the championship and that's part of why there have been a bunch of teams that I just, that just, you know, undeniable talent in particular. It's like, well, can, can you, it, it, the only way that you can be the battering ram is if you are a battering ram that can get through any type of wall, no matter how thick. And the fact of the matter is there are very few people who are that good, and Giannis isn't at this moment. But also remember that one of the other reasons why that didn't work 
was because they could load up so heavily on Giannis because they knew that if they did that, it wasn't leading to to gaps and fissures at other places that were going to cost them. Well, there's that, and, and I brought this up on, I think, a recent podcast. I can't remember if I was talking about this on a podcast or on a phone call with someone, so if I have brought it up, I apologize. But the, the big thing with Milwaukee is that the way that they run their offense tends to be very stationary. They don't have yes. much in the way of relocation, uh, or they don't have much in the way of like backside screening off-ball action, right? So the Heat feel like they can actually stunt toward Giannis and then recover out to the three-point line, knowing that their guy is going to be there. Like, they don't have to worry about trying to relocate where that guy is because he's relocated into a three-point spot, right? So I think that just the overall stagnation of that offense allowed for Miami to feel very comfortable with what it was doing defensively. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And also, like, I mean, this came up after Giannis got hurt, but, like, one of the ways that they could have attacked Miami was with a Bledsoe-Lopez high pick and roll, which they basically hadn't run all year. And so there was some of that, which was the the identity of the Bucks being so tied in with, we do this one thing really well, as opposed to Nick Nurse's philosophy of, let's try a bunch of different things, especially defensively. Like, it's not like the Raptors' offense was truly groundbreaking this year. But that idea of like, oh, we need to have reps in all of these different areas is, is, is an important one. But yeah, uh, it definitely point taken overall. Well, and, and let's talk about the Raptors and just close on this for a second here, because we're going to talk about the Celtics a lot more on this podcast. Not this one, but in future podcasts. Uh, how concerned should we be about how terrible Pascal Siakam was in this series? Because he, he was awful. Like, in, in every regard, he was pretty bad, I thought. Some, but not dramatic. I mean, so Siakam has been, he was the most improved player last season and he was in the conversation for most improved this season and you know at at the i'm not sure how much the the overall arcs of players are relevant second he's already 26 at this point so you could say oh he's not gonna be that much better but he's already gotten so much better at ages where right. that isn't always true yeah the, the growth but development curve is just it's totally crazy. different for him but if the if he has been good enough that the threshold has changed to can he be the best player on a championship team i think the answer is no I don't think that he is that type of player, but I also don't think everybody has to be that type of player. I don't. I don't think that it's necessarily fair. And well, there this, are like six guys in the league. Who exactly, can and so I don't think Siakam. I don't think that he is good enough creating one on one to be that guy offensively. And then defensively, he's better as a cog in a incredible machine rather than you know like a one man a one man band. Like he isn't. I don't think very many perimeter guys can ever be that guy, and I don't think Siakam is either. So this like so so if that's not Siakam's destiny, okay, you know like I, I think that that there's I mean for him to become an All NBA caliber player is a triumph in of his own effort, but also development from the Toronto Raptors and everything else. But is is I so yes if if the idea of the Raptors be, if the if you're defining success for the Raptors as them being a championship caliber team. And you are also saying that Siakam needs to be their best player. Well, then it might be it might be tough luck. Like that might not be the way it works. So I, I don't I don't really know how to how to inter how to did I did I convey what I'm saying well enough? No, I, th- I, I hope that I, think, I did. I think you did, and I think that the big question is is uh, is he good enough to be a number two? I oh th- yeah, absolutely. I think, I think but I don't think he's a great number two for every number one. 
And that's the, like, we're not going to talk about Giannis Giannis stuff too much, but I actually don't love a Siakam-Giannis pairing because I think they have, not because their strengths are too similar, but because their weaknesses are too similar. Like, if... I mean, that that team's the number one defensive team in the NBA immediately. Oh, yeah. They're the number one defensive team in the NBA. They have very... You could put so many different things around them, and one of the other intriguing strengths is... You need shooting at every spot, but you can get it at basically any height. Right. You know, like if, if it's a seven foot shooter, great. If it's a six foot six shooter, great. Even better. If it's six foot two, sure, we can make that work. But they still would have trouble grading in the half court. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, and, and so, like, I mean. And by the but, way, you bring up the idea of being the best player on a title team. This is, this is the number of players who have been the best player on a title team in recent years, right? So we've got Kawhi. Steph Curry, LeBron James, Kevin Durant. Yeah, Kevin Durant. Sure, like we can say Kevin Durant was one of the best was the best player on the Warriors because he probably was. In he was. Um, Tim Duncan in 2014, LeBron James in 2012 and 2013, Dirk in 2011, uh, 2009 2010 is Kobe. Uh, the Celtics is Kevin Garnett, and then 2007 is. Um, Tim Duncan, 2005 is Tim Duncan, 2003 is Tim Duncan. Uh, Miami Heat is 2006, that's Dwayne Wade. So we're talking about 11 guys over the course of a 15-year career, over the course of a 15-year period. Worth noting, there are other guys that were at that level that just didn't. Um, like I would say, there was a point when Chris Paul was the best player on it, could have been the best player in a championship. Durant was in years that they didn't win, that the Thunder didn't win the title. You know, there are other sure. examples. Sure, but, but like you, but you go we're back rarefied air here. You go back it's, to uh, even 1995, 94, you're getting into Hakeem Olajuwon. Uh, you get back to 89, 90, like you're getting into Isaiah Thomas, right? And like maybe, honestly, Isaiah Thomas, other than that Pistons team in 2014, or 2004, or 2004 I'm sorry, not 2014. Um, Isaiah Thomas is probably the worst best player on a title team since like 19, I don't even know. Like you have to go deep into the eighties, I think even like you have to go pre magic and bird like into like, I'm not like super familiar with like early eighties NBA history. So like, you know, maybe there's someone there, but like Isaiah Thomas is probably top 30 player of all time. And like that's the level you got to be at to win a title unless you're the Pistons and unless you're like literally just like the best defensive team of all time or like one of the three or four best defensive teams of all time. Like Kawhi Leonard's going to be a top 25 player of all time. Kevin Durant, Stephen Curry, those guys are top 20 players of all time. Tim Duncan's a top 10 player of all time. Um, LeBron James is a top two player of all time. Dirk's a top 20 player of all time. Kobe Bryant's top, you know, I don't want to put a number on it because I don't want Lakers fans to get fucking angry with me. Number like Kevin Garnett's top twenty-five player of all time. Like that—that's where you have to be to win a title in history, basically. And you know, like it's not a—it's not a bad thing to say that Pascal Siakam isn't going to be a top twenty-five player of all time. It's—it's uh, it's not a bad thing to say that even. Uh, I'm trying to think of like a random player that like people think is absolutely exceptional. Uh, Like, yeah, like Nikola Jokic even like, I don't think Nikola Jokic yet is at the point where he can be the best player on a title team. 
and Jokic is fucking unreal for many of the reasons that we like talked about for the entirety of the beginning of this podcast. So like the level, the standard that you have to be to get to the mountaintop in the NBA is just so, so difficult. And I think that's why you saw so many teams early in this decade try to sell out to get stars and to find the next top 20 player of all time, because that's what it says you have to have. That's what history says you have to have to win a title. Right. So it's a real challenge. It's, it's unbelievably difficult. And it's kind of why I thought there were three teams that could win a title this year in the Clippers, Lakers and Bucks, because I think they have that guy. The Celtics are starting to make me wonder if they have that guy with Jason Tatum, because there is a chance he could get there. He's certainly not there, but he's someone that I look at in the league and I'm like, okay, there's a world where this guy can be that kind of player. And with that, let's take another commercial break before we move on to the final thing that we want to talk about here. Hi, I'm Tass Mellis from No Dunks on the Athletic. As the great philosopher Brian of the Backstreet Boys once said, Everybody, yeah, hydrate your body, yeah, everybody, hydrate your body, right? Hydration's back, all right! We all know we have to stay hydrated. I've used an app a big water bottle, post-it notes. And proper hydration is extremely important right now. It can really help your immune system. Believe it or not, dehydration occurs daily in three out of four people. With Liquid IV, you have the fastest, most efficient way to stay hydrated. Each serving helps you get as much hydration as two to three bottles of water. I like using Liquid IV when I hit that afternoon lull. Instead of grabbing a coffee, I grab one stick of the lemon-lime put it in my water, and I get that energy boost I need without dehydrating my body and getting dry mouth. It's win-win because it contains five essential vitamins, more vitamin C than an orange, and as much potassium as a banana. Oh, my mate Lily would love it. It's healthier than sugary sports drinks with no artificial flavors or preservatives and less sugar than an apple. Liquid IV is available nationwide at Costco and Target. Or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code ATHLETIC at checkout. That's 25% off anything you order when you use promo code ATHLETIC at liquidiv.com. Get better hydration today at liquidiv.com, promo code ATHLETIC. The last advertisement here is for... A very, very special, special beer. Because if you ever feel like you always need to be on and you need a moment to chill, you need to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next. I know that I've been feeling that way over the course of the last couple of weeks. It's just been nonstop. But man, there's very few things better than just a cold Coors Light whenever you just need a minute to take 
a reset. Coors Light wants to give you a way to take a break from the new realities of endless video chats in 2020. Say goodbye to your video chat background and hello to that beautiful travel destination in real life where you can actually chill. Five lucky winners are going to get trips to the beautiful destinations they've been dreaming about for months. To enter for a chance to win, visit CoorsLight.com slash outside during September and upload a screenshot of yourself in your ideal video chat background. The prize package is valid through June 2022, so winners can plan their trip whenever they feel comfortable. Uh, look, I don't really use the video chat background. I use the white walls in my apartment. I would love though to get out and go to a beach right now. There's nothing I would like to do more. Even though I live in Los Angeles, uh, I would love nothing more than to be able to just go sit down on a beach, feel like I'm safe and go out and just read a book on the beach. And I feel like I've not been able to do that for a while. Uh, just enter for a chance to win to the beautiful destination of your choice at CoorsLight.com slash outside. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. There is no purchase necessary. Sweepstakes begin on August 27th, 2020, and they end on October 1st, 2020. It's open only to legal residents of the 50 U.S. states. And Washington, D.C. You got to be 21 or over. Travel must be to the destination indicated in the entry and must be completed by June 30th, 2022. For official rules, including how to enter, prize details, and restrictions, visit www.coreslight.com outside. Void where prohibited message and data rates may apply. Now, back to the show. All right, the last thing we're going to run through here, where do the Rockets go from here, Danny? I know that you're writing about this coming up here. It's just ridiculous to me. Like, I, I have no idea where this team is going to go. So, yeah, I've been, I've been working on my uh, solo offseason preview for The Athletic. And let's separate this out from personnel on the court and <laughs> everything else. So they have the least flexible roster in the entire NBA. And there, there are a couple of different reasons why. One is they have so they have a bunch of they have some good players that are on what I would consider below market contracts. That would be Robert Covington has two years left at, at about a combined twenty five million, so about thirteen twelve thirteen a year, at, which is unbelievable value from that contract. The uh, the one that Hinky basically set up where it was you know they gave him a balloon payment when they had cap space, and then all the other years were cheap. PJ Tucker eight million, absolutely sign me up. Then Harden, MVP candidate, he's making over 40. Russell Westbrook, not an MVP candidate anymore. He's making over 40. So the challenge for the Rockets is they don't, the only like middle salaries they have are all really good players. They have no young assets. They have no, they have so few draft picks available because of the obligate, the trades that they've made before that their roster to me is, it's not set in stone, but it's like quick read. You know, it's it's getting it's getting pretty close, and it's that's just where it is right now. Like, yeah, if they wanted to move James Harden, maybe they could make that happen. But like, 
Russell Westbrook is one of the more negative contracts to be in the league, and I don't know where his constituencies lie anymore, especially at 40, let's call it 44 million a year. Yeah, so I mean, like, that's that's a big part. Like, I think Russell Westbrook is, like, if he hit the free agency market, I think he'd probably still get four years, $100 million. Like, I think someone would probably pay that to him. But that's still... I I don't think he would get that. I think especially when you consider how he's he's not a ceiling raiser. We know that for for sure right now. But he's also I don't know how much of a floor raiser he is at this point in his career. Like yes, he looked worse in these playoffs because he wasn't right physically. And I mean that remember he also had COVID and dealt with dealt with this uh, quad issue. And so that is a a real challenge. But his limitations are so pronounced and. He could be a, a solid regular season player, but I don't think that he's at the point yet where he... Like, you think about all of the other best... Like, is he the best offensive player on a good team anymore? Uh, even if they... Like, a more like could he... Let's say you plop him on the Charlotte Hornets. Does he make them a top 15 offense? I don't think so. He'd yeah, help I, a lot. I, I think he does. I don't think um, he does. I think I think he he helps a lot and he he makes a big difference, but I don't think he does that. And I mean, let, let's say those first twenty three games in Houston like were an adjustment period, right? And then eventually they decided to move Clint Capella, and that really opened things up for him. And then, um, you know, James Harden started to slow down a little bit. I think he might have been a little bit banged up, if I remember correctly, early in the season or uh, yeah, think you know, so. back to December or whatever. Uh, from December sixteenth through when the stoppage was. Russell Westbrook was averaging 31.3 points, 8.1 rebounds, and 7 assists a game. Yeah. Uh, like but he, we're, he was worth, worth remembering how much Daryl Morey had to move heaven and earth to make that work for him. You know, sure. like, like if yeah, if you have the ability to have shooting at, all, at every other position, then yeah, Russell Westbrook can be that. But it's oh, that's a luxury that very few teams have. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. But... I think someone would probably like, I'm not even saying he's going to get the max for what he is. Cause his max is 35% right now. So it's essentially 35 million. Uh, I think someone would pay him four years, maybe three years, 75, but I think he'd okay. get 25 a year. But anyway, undervalue, uh, like negative, of, negative, negative value contract. Yeah. The, the point um, is that like, yeah, it's a contract that's $20 million per year underwater probably. And that's even with Russ being a very good player still. Right. And Harden, very good player, still really close to the peak of his powers. And I don't think, you know, if you move Harden, then that's totally transforming the team. A lot of the other stuff they have doesn't make as much sense, depending on what you get in the terms. So really, I and if you want, so the challenge is you have these two below market guys in Covington and Tucker. If you move them, your team's probably going to get worse because there aren't that many good players that make the amount of money they make. And then, so that really leaves Eric Gordon. Gordon has three fully guaranteed years left and about 18 million a year is a good rough proxy for him. There is a non-guaranteed year at the end of that, but I don't think that matters a ton because I don't think he's going to be worth 21 million then. So it's really hard to change over this roster. They don't have sweeteners to make it better. And if the tax is a, is a foundational concern for them, which I think it is, even though Tillman Fertitta can say as many things to Talitz as to deny that as he wants, I look at what they've actually done. And what they've actually done is used assets to 
avoid the luxury tax since he has taken over ownership. <laughs> so that is that is what I will assume moving forward. And they could do an Oklahoma City Thunder situation where they pay the tax, but they pay the tax later than they should have, and that doesn't yield as much fruit as it would have if they had done it in the prime years. Possible, not definite. Um, but so so then what that means is uh, I okay. will say we we have no evidence that. Uh... Tillman Fertitta is ever going to do that. Oh, oh, great. Agreed. I mean, the assumption has to be until he does it that he will not. And, I mean, the team has been materially worse. He can, When you don't do that for a title contender, my assumption is that you're not going to do it after that. Right. Um, but, and, but, and, like, look, part of it, too, is, like, they made a miscalculation on the Russell Westbrook for Chris Paul deal because, it, you know, based off of reports, Chris Paul didn't want to be there anymore. Yeah, and also, like, I mean— Chris Paul was far healthier this year than he had been for the Rockets at right. various moments. And, and there, there are a bunch of other kind of other parts of that of that overall equation. But so, so the Rockets have the least, in my opinion, the least flexible roster in the NBA. And it's not only inflexible in terms of the books and the players are hard to trade. It's also a very specific roster. Like, you know, like you can you can't play a ton of different ways with this team. So Mike D'Antoni is not going to be their coach next year. I don't know how dramatically different. I mean, you could you could do certain things in terms of like what you do offensively and defensively, but you can't like run something totally different. So there are a couple of things here. So one, I think that, so you run into a, a first, the first big challenge is anytime you're hiring a new coach, a proper owner will evaluate their general manager as well, because one of the things a different general manager would want to do most is hire their own coach. And so if you basically entrusting a GM with a coaching decision buys them some time. And so maybe he wanted Maury for longer. Maybe it was uncertain. That's a decision that Fertitta needs to make now. And then it gets into this other thing, which is how desirable of a job is either the general manager or or the coaching job in Houston. And it's desirable because they have a lot of talent. Like, they are a very good team, but it is not desirable because the roster will continue to get worse because they don't have players on the positive side of the aging curve that are good. And they, you know, age is not going to help them. They're going to get more limited athletically. They're going to, you know, it's going to, it's going to be a real challenge. So I, I think that it's a, it's a real, it's a real challenge. Now they will get a good coach because there aren't that many NBA jobs. And it's, and, and so I, I don't know exactly who it, who it will be. And general managers, there aren't that many jobs in the league. If if they end up firing Maury, which I really don't know what what they're going to end up doing there, so I I think that they are you know they are largely stuck, and that is okay. Like there are worst places to be stuck in the league. Obviously, I mean the Rockets were to me a second tier title team this year, and yes, they got knocked out in kind of conspicuous fashion this year by a really good legit tier one team, but. I don't know. You could ride this out a couple of years. It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Yeah, but Daryl Morey... It's not fun, though. Daryl Morey tends not to deal with just, like, riding things out. But see, here's the thing. Like, I agree with you, and I think that Morey will... If he is, if he has the levers there, that he will do what he can. But I honestly don't know what he can do at this point. Are they going to trade Robert Covington for a center? Are they going to try to... I, I mean, let's say Eric Gordon. Like, I think he's the most movable piece on this roster. But is he positive value on that contract? Is he, and, and is he, you know, like you're presumably trading small for, 
you're trading a shooting guard for something other than a shooting guard. And I would argue that, you know, yeah, centers are less valuable in the abstract, but twos, they're scarce, but it's not like Eric Gordon is like, he's a like a, like a fringe starter or sixth man. It's not like you're going to get a great center for that. Yeah. Or a four or whatever, whatever you want. I haven't done enough of a deep dive into Houston to try and figure out like what their actual options are in terms of how they can try to make something like this work. Well, especially if the tax here, I'll, I'll give the, I'll give this number. So let's say Austin rivers opts out. So he has a, he has a very, I would say a very, a very team friendly option and they lose, you know, all the, all the unrestricted free agents, their, their holds go off the books. They have the Rockets would have, including Clemens and Macklemore, they would have eight players on roster. And using the estimate, I'm basically the, the estimate that I'm using for the cap and tax next year is identical to the current season, which actually might be optimistic. We don't know. In that case, the Rockets have eight players on the books, and they have five point four million under the tax. So good luck. Well, yeah, they're going to be trading. But what are they trading? Well, the other problem here is, like, you can't move Russell Westbrook by throwing picks into a deal. Like, you can't trade him to Charlotte, who has cap space, and be like, yeah, we're going to take back, you know, Cody Zeller and, you know, Nick Batum or whatever into a deal like that because Charlotte probably then would want three, two first-round picks at least to do that. Yeah, I mean, you'd be Russell Westbrook is less a negative than those contracts in the first year, but you're adding as Charlotte adding ninety million dollars after next season because Batum and Zeller both expire, right. and that's a negative. That's a below value contract. So yeah, that, and, and the Rockets don't have any good young players either. So yeah, their sweeteners are terrible. I I just think I agree with. But so the other point of like when I'm saying they're stuck. I don't mean they can't make any moves, though I do think that. It's that they might do something that makes them worse. You know, like it's like the, basically the idea is doing something is better than well, doing nothing. I, I even guess, if- the, I guess the, the, where I come with at this is like, I do wonder if we're closer to like a decision being made on James Harden than what people think. And by that, I mean like, I'm not saying that the Rockets are going to trade James Harden this summer. I don't think they are. But... Are we a year away from that being a real discussion? Yes. I think we are too. Like, I, I think that that is, if I think that, I think they probably run it back this year, but if it doesn't quite work out to the way they want to, you probably move Harden and see what happens. Right. And at that point, some of their other, some of their other contracts are less onerous. They're, you know, there, there's only two years left, let's say, instead of three for, for some of those deals. And maybe they look better. And maybe by that point we're rosier on where the salary cap and luxury tax are going in the future, so that money looks more manageable. You know, you get into those circumstances. Also, we don't know what kind of year Harden's going to have next season. I mean, I, I'm very interested in what in, in what that'll look like. And so, I, I mean, I think that yeah, I think that the I, basically probably holding pattern for one year, then potentially large scale renovations, but. I don't know that for sure. I, I just, I just think they're in a tough spot. They're in probably. I think you put it best when you said they're in the most inflexible spot in the league. Uh, I don't know that they're in the toughest spot because 
they're winning games. They're like a 50-win team right now, right? And there are worse places to be, but they're in a very difficult spot. And they're in a they're in a tricky spot from a team building perspective, particularly. So, Danny, on that note, let's get out of here. Please tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on in your life. Other oh, bunch of different places. I mean, so my written work is all at the Athletic. You can check that out. Um, doing team by team previews, largely tied with when they're eliminated, but not entirely, because <laughs> there's a lot going on. Um, and then the new project, so Dunked On, the podcast to do with Nate Duncan, we've transitioned from being public five days a week to now we are, it's called Dunked On Prime. We are private four days a week and public once we actually did almost a two-hour podcast. Those are going to be Sunday night, Monday morning. So you can listen to the one we did on Clippers Nuggets, previewing the Eastern Conference Finals, then we did a free agency preview as well. Um, so you can listen to those and then Dunked On Prime is a monthly or yearly subscription and that's where you get all of our stuff now. And uh, then Real GM Radio is the podcast that I do. That's still public 100% with uh, Real GM. I have a guest on. Sam's on it fairly frequently. And uh, follow me on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X for anything else. Danny, have you started watching Selling Sunset yet? I have not. Oh, it's it's taken over my life. I think on Thursday, uh, or at least the next podcast I do this week, I might have to have someone on that's like just fully watched Selling Sunset because... It's the most ridiculous show. It's basically like this real estate group that sells uh, properties in the Hollywood Hills and in Beverly Hills and stuff. You know, these properties go from like anywhere from two to $75 million. Okay. And it's like also a docu-drama involving like the women and their uh, difficulties in life. And between the uh, just real estate that gets shown like I was like 90% uh, watching it for the real estate originally. Cause I'm like one of those people who constantly looks at real estate uh, in my spare time and, you know, looks at houses and finds the whole thing fascinating. Uh, I- I've now become entrenched in these women's lives and I need to know more about what's going on at all times. I- I've gone on like deep dives uh, into uh, like Google searches. Now uh, it's, it's taking over my life. Well, maybe at some point we'll have that to talk about. Yeah. Uh, Danny, it's good to talk to you. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe. Do everything that you can to support the show. We'll be back later this week with more. But until next time, we will talk soon. Bye. Bye.